Praise the Lord. We're on Hebrews. Are y'all okay with just studying the book of the Bible? Y'all good? You see, our Sunday mornings could be all evangelistic. A lot of churches do that. It's all about inviting the lost in and preaching gospel messages and letting the lost get saved. And we want to do that at return. Every Sunday, we want to give someone an invitation or an opportunity to find Jesus. But equally as important, our church is to be a church of discipleship. And we really don't grow unless we learn our Bibles. You've got to learn the ways of God, the mind of God, the will of God. In order to foster and nurture a relationship with God, you've just got to understand more how he thinks. And I've been a Bible student for a long time, but every week I come to him as a little child. Like Solomon did, I'm just a child, I don't know how to go in or out. So give me your wisdom, Lord. Teach me. Teach me in the way I should go. So every week I'm excited. I wake up on Monday morning. God's got some new bread for me, new manna for me. And we're not just trying to learn our Bibles for the information. We're trying to learn the author of the Bible. We're trying to learn about our Lord. We're trying to learn how it helps our relationship with him. So what we teach here at return is nothing but Bible. We believe the Bible all the way from Genesis through maps, every bit of it, cover to cover. We, we love our Bibles here. So uh, I usually teach syntopically uh, or just take topics of the Bible, but the Lord really put it on my heart to let us walk through Hebrews. And we're not, we can't do it verse by verse. It would take all year. So I'm picking out the main motifs or main themes of Hebrews, and we're going to run with that. So this, this lesson's on Sabbath rest. We talked about Hebrews 1. Hebrews 2, the big comparison was that Jesus was the final word and he was much superior to angels. In Hebrews 3 and 4, you find out he's much superior to Moses and the Old Testament law. Much superior. That, that was great, but that was a type and a shadow pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. He's the fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament so he's much greater, and, and the writer of Hebrews is telling them this because they were a bunch of Jews that were being persecuted for their faith. They were suffering for their faith, and, and this whole religious body, probably their family members they came from, were persecuting them, trying to get them pulled back into Judaism, because the, the people in, still kept the law of Moses and all the, the Sabbaths and all the Levitical priesthood and all the 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant, these, they see these people find this man Jesus and walk away from them, well, it, it threatened their belief system. So all they know to do is to persecute the people that left. So the writer here is writing to them saying, hey, don't go back to where you came from. You've got the real deal now. You've met Jesus, you don't need law. You've met Jesus, you don't need religion. You've met Jesus, you don't need to go back and keep all these Sabbath day laws because you have Jesus the real Sabbath day. So that's, that's what our theme is here. I'm going to take you through and read you some verses. You, if you've you got your Bible, turn to Hebrews 3. I'm reading out of the ESV today. Feel free to read along. We put it on the screen here if you can see that. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. How many know you've got to go through a wilderness? That the children of Israel, this, this whole context he's about to, we're about to read here, is talking about the children of Israel who were saved in Egypt. Two and a half, three and a half million people, some say over four million people, 
got delivered out of Egypt miraculously. And a cloud and fire let them out miraculously. And the Red Sea split in half miraculously. They walked through the Red Sea untouched, unharmed. And then Pharaoh's army went in the sea and miraculously the sea drowned Pharaoh's army. And then miraculously they go to the bitter waters and Moses throw a tree of life in the bitter waters. The bitter waters are made sweet and miraculously manna rains down from heaven and miraculously they go to Mount Sinai and see the very glory of the Lord come on the mountain. And God speaks to Moses through angels and gives them the law and gives them the tabernacle. But my point is all this happened, and then they wake up and find themselves in a harsh wilderness. Christian, when someone gets saved, it doesn't mean their life's going to be easy and rosy the rest of the way. Because, see, they were out of Egypt, but Egypt was not yet out of them. You may have been saved from the world, but you may still have some of the world in you. And that's why God puts us through the wilderness. The wilderness was God's will. That's, it was God that led them into the wilderness. The Christian teachers today that teach that a Christian should have no suffering or pain in their life, they just don't understand. They just don't get it. It takes the wilderness to get the world out of us, to get Egypt out of us, to get, for us to be conformed into his image. So he's writing this story, ch- chapter 3, chapter 4, talking about the children of Israel who were out of Egypt in the wilderness, and God had promised them rest if they could go into Canaan's land, the promised land. He promised them a land of rest. He promised them a land of milk and honey. He promised them a beautiful, blessed place, but they had to trust God in order to do that. Now, that, let me, now with that backstory, let's read. Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, here's the warning. This whole next passage is a warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Every day, exhort one another, encourage one another. When you get a Christian on the phone, encourage them. When you see a Christian face-to-face, encourage them. Every day we need exhorting and encouraging and building up. As long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled. Was it not all those which left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world." For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested 
on the seventh day from all his works. So then there, I'm in verse 9, drop down to verse 9, if you're in your Bible. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of the marrow and discerner, the, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Blessed be the reading of God's word. The motifs here are life, uh, Jesus is superior to Moses and the law. Life is a spiritual journey from weariness to rest. How many of y'all are sick and tired of being sick and tired? <laughs> it just beats me down sometimes. Just get weary. <laughs> it's a journey from weariness to rest. God has a Sabbath rest for his people. This is really good news. There's a place of rest that you and I can enter into and live in that place. The Sabbath is not a day. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. The Sabbath is, Jesus is the Sabbath. God desires intimacy with his people. These are the motifs, the themes that we find here in Hebrews 1 through 4. The four critical foundational pillars of Christianity, things I've asked God to really think on, and we've, we've been a long time on the first three, and now we're into intimacy. Identity. Who are you in Christ? Who does God see you? How does God see you? What is your true identity? Image. Are we in love with our image or do we want his image? Are we one, do we pray that you'll conform me into your image? No matter if it takes pain, conform me into your image. Indwelling. Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you aware when you pray, do you think God's a million miles off? He's right inside of your heart. It's learning to be broken that he might release himself out of you. When you learn to be, let the Spirit of the Lord release himself, there'll be like a river flowing from your belly of love, a river of glory, a river of light that will flow into other people. Then intimacy, the highest calling possible. God is calling you to a life of intimacy with him. If you're a Christian and just wants to be saved, and when you die you want to go to heaven, you don't want to deal with anything deeper than that, then this message won't even make sense to you. This, this lesson is for people that really want the heart of God, that really want to walk with God, people that really you know, want their life to be a living sacrifice to God. Intimacy, that you have a relationship that is so beautiful and one with Him. And uh, we talked last week on intimacy a little bit. Remember we said there's no intimacy without finality in a personal relationship. All relationships with absolutes you must accept. Let's accept the finality is relationship's over. Something you cannot change. We have to accept, adapt, and adjust. You know these three babies you just saw? Mom and dad, those babies, are, they look perfect because they're innocent. But, you know, they bring some finalities to the deal. They're going to mess their diaper up, and somebody's got to clean it. They're going to get hungry, and they're going to cry when they're hungry. But moms and dads don't have any problem adjusting to something that innocent, that beautiful, that blessed. We adjust. Whatever the finalities are, the absolutes are, we adjust. And God wants you to adjust to his finalities, his absolutes. Quit trying to 
Create God in your own image. Quit trying to make a God that fits your lifestyle. Let God be who he is. There's only one reality, and that's the living, true God. So when God comes into your life, you ask him in, you got to accept the finalities and the absolutes that come with that. you got to adjust. He adjusted for you. Oh, boy, did he ever adjust for you. He sent his son to die on a cross. The only way possible to remove the sin of mankind. The Old Testament covenant covered sin. They, they offered up animal sacrifices to cover sin. But sin didn't get removed until Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. Jesus came to remove your sin. Take it off your heart. Now there's no condemnation, no guilt, no shame because you walk in continual forgiveness in Christ. Jesus came to do something no other man could do. God adjusted and accepted and adapted because he said, you know what? Every one of them, I look down there, every one of them are sinners. I want a relationship with them. He looks and sees you separated from him. And he says, I want to be close to them. So I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son to live the perfect life that they could never live. And I'm going to ask him to go to the cross and die in their place and take all the sin of the world upon himself on the cross that, that he might pay the price, pay the ransom. And then I'm going to ask him to put his righteousness on all that will believe. And everyone that puts their faith and trust in what Christ did, then that's Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, that making an adjustment for you. He knows your weakness. He knows your sin. He knows those things you can't help. So he comes to the cross and dies in your place. Oh, wow, does God ever, what more does he need to do to prove to us that he wants a relationship with us? Intimacy, intimacy with God. Now, our text we just read about the children of Israel, and God was pretty mad at that group because out of those two and a half to say four million people, it said 600,000 men, so you got a million two with the women, so they had two kids, three kids, four kids. Plus there was a mixed multitude of strangers with them. So it was a big crowd of people. And the Bible talks about Joshua and Caleb. He lists two more names there, but I'm not for sure it's the same two guys. But it could be four people. But for sure two people out of, let's say, three million actually wanted Canaan's land. Actually believed God, trusted God. And all the rest of them died in the wilderness. So I think it serves us well to see exactly what kept them from Canaan's land. What kept them out of the promised land. And uh, I, I want to be like Joshua and Caleb. I want to be someone with a heart full of faith that says, I want to let me take this mountain. I want to be and do what God wants me to be and do. But this group of people, this big crowd in the wilderness, they continually griped and complained. They never could get happy. They demonstrated zero amount of gratitude. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? You want to go back to the world? That same Egypt where you were slave that God miraculously delivered you from? You want to go back to that? Are you kidding me? It breaks my heart when I see people wanting to go back. And see, the, remember the author writing to Jewish Christians in about 62 to 68 A.D., was warning them, don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to religion. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the law. Jesus has come to set you free. Don't go back into captivity. 
And then they believed the evil report of the ten spies instead of the report of Joshua and Caleb. They were afraid to go in the promised land. You know, let me tell you something. If you're going to go on for God, you're going to have to take risk. Faith involves risk. If you always play it safe, you're never going to move from where you are right now. You've got to take a risk to advance in God. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God would not let them enter, God would not let them enter into Canaan's land. They died in the wilderness. Why? Unbelief. 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 One simple thing kept them out of Canaan's land. Unbelief. See why it's so important for you to know your Bible and to believe your Bible. To believe the living word of God. When God says something, you can bank on it. You can rest your whole life on it. You know, when God says something about you or about him or about life, believe the promises of God's word and not what you feel or what you see. Put your faith, put all of your weight, put all of your trust in God's word. That's the key. Now, here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Liz and I kind of call this the theme verse of return. We've never officially adopted it, but we have this hanging in our kitchen. Isaiah 30, 15 says, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. Turn back toward God. Don't turn away from God. In returning and rest. We've got to find this place of rest. There's, there's a place there's an experience that there's a spiritual realm that you enter in called Sabbath rest. That's where your salvation is found. Not, not necessarily saved from hell, but saved from fear, saved from worry, saved, saved from anxiety, saved from the devil tormenting you, saved from just being afraid you're going to fall. There's so many things people are afraid of. In returning and rest, thou shalt be saved. And in quietness and trust shall be your strength. Remember David when he's fighting Goliath? He gets there, Saul scared. The whole army of Israel scared to death over one big man. One nine foot tall man put the whole army. See, the leader, the people were no better than their leader. The leader was scared. All the army was scared. And young David shows up on the scene with absolutely no fear at all. Did not fear. Saul tried to give him his armor. I don't need that armor. I got a slingshot. I got a rock in my pocket. And I've got the Lord on my side. In the name of the Lord, David came with full faith and courage. He faced up to the the thing they feared. David just faced it and trusted God and pulled the slingshot out of his, let it go. Pop Goliath right in the head. And he goes up and grabs Goliath's massive sword and cuts his head off. Beloved, you don't need to fear. Quit living in fear. Daniel had no fear walking down in the lion's den. They may have roared on the way down, but when he got down there, I think he snuggled up to him and took a nap. Daniel had no fear. He trusted his God. Stephen might be the best example in the New Testament of Sabbath rest. He just received the Holy Spirit a few days before. And the 3,000 people got saved after Peter's first sermon. And they, they, the apostles had so much work to do sharing the word of God, they appointed men to help serve the tables and care for the people. And Stephen was one of these first deacons. And it didn't take long. Stephen was so bold, he was preaching to the Pharisees. And, man, they stoned him. They killed him. And as they were stoning him, the Bible talks about him looking up. And he had this tremendous peace and he had Sabbath rest. 
He wasn't afraid to die. He didn't try to run from the stones. He didn't try to shut anybody's mouth up. He was preaching the truth and God took him home and they got to witness that. And there's a man named Paul. His name was Saul at that time. Witnessed the death of Stephen. He consented to the death of Stephen. He was in on the whole thing. And he watched Stephen die in such a way that he watched Stephen go to be with the Lord. That had to trouble his soul. God was preparing Saul's heart at that time. Because just a few days later on the road to Damascus, the Lord came and shone his glory light on Saul. And blinded his eyes and spoke to him. And changed his name and changed his life. And the world got changed after that. All because of this man, Stephen, had entered into the rest of God. You see, if you don't have Sabbath rest, nobody's going to want what you got. You got a big smile, sad eyes, nobody wants that. Nobody gets changed. You got to get happy eyes to match that smile. Eyes full of fire, eyes full of love, eyes full of rest. That's what people want. They want to see somebody walking in Sabbath rest. So Joshua and Caleb entered the land by faith. They were like Stephen. They were like Daniel. They were like David. These Joshua and Caleb were the two leaders that had this tremendous faith. So we're going to go to book of Numbers and just read you a few verses here. If you want to turn with me, I'm in the 13th chapter of Numbers. I want to show you why the children of Israel couldn't go in. Why God kept saying, I swear in my wrath, I'm not letting them in Canaan's land. This is why. Numbers 13, 25. Then to the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. God, God picked 12 men. Moses picked 12 men to go in the land of Canaan and spy it out. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The fruit was giant. They were bringing big, giant grapes, you know, big, giant everything. And they told them, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Milk and honey obviously means there's a lot of cattle in the land. Texas Longhorns, I'm almost quite sure. And then there was um, bees. There were beehives everywhere, all right? We had milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Geb and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea all on the Jordan. So the spies came and said, hey, there's a lot of fruit there. There's milk and honey. It's great. But man, there's a lot of people inhabiting the land that look like our enemy. There we go. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able, whole different story, to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. They brought us to a people, to the people of Israel, a, they, I'm sorry, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people saw it are of great height, and all the people we saw are of great height, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. In other words, we're like grasshoppers, they're all giants, we can't do this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. These ten spies had the whole three men of them crying, crying before God. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 
the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? They said one to another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They were afraid and they wanted to go back. And Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows of milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting with all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. I want to take the time to show you that because there's a stark contrast in what Joshua and Caleb saw and what they reported and what the ten spies saw and what they reported. The children of Israel believed the evil report by the ten spies. If we go in there, we're going to get killed. If we go in there, those people are giants. We're not warriors. We don't know how to fight. We're going to get killed. If you go back in the Torah, though, in the book of Exodus, you'll see where God promised to fight their fights for them. God promised to drive the inhabitants out for them. They had already been given the word of God. All they had to do is believe it. And Caleb and Joshua remembered that and said, we're well able to take this land. Come on, guys. Let's go get them. We've got the Lord on our side. Just like David was able to kill the giant Goliath, they were able to drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amalekites, all the Ike brothers in the land. God just wanted the people to put their trust in him. He just wanted a people that would believe him. That he says, I'll do it for you. They, he wanted a people that would say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, let's do it. You do it for me. You do it through me. Sabbath rest is simply living by the life of another and trusting Jesus to live his life through your life. You enter into a rest where you cease from your works and entered into his rest. You're putting all of your trust in him. They didn't go in the land because of unbelief. There's one thing to keep you from experiencing Sabbath rest, unbelief. Unbelief in some of the promises of God. Some people don't yet believe who they are in Christ, unbelief. Some people don't yet understand how God's a just God. And all things work together for the good of those that love God and the call according to his purpose. Some people just cannot believe that. They don't believe in the justice and the holiness of God. They want a God full of love, but don't give me this God of justice. Beloved, just believe God for who he is. God is who he says he is, and and you can't go wrong because he's loving and kind and gentle and gracious and full of goodness and abundant in truth. Full of mercy. You can put your trust in him. So, there's really three classes of rest for the believer. One is salvation, what I call redemption rest justification, free gift, God's grace. If you're not saved today, if you're condemned on your way to hell, you should give your heart to Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Give your whole life to him. Throw yourself down at his feet and give yourself to him. And you'll experience a rest that's amazing. But that's salvation rest. That's when you get peace with God. 
There's another level of rest called Canaan's rest. This is where the children of Israel were trying to get into. But a lot of people think crossing the Jordan, there's a lot of songs, old gospel songs that deal with crossing the Jordan is the picture of going to heaven. Let me tell you, heaven's not full of Amalekites and Jebusites and Canaanites. Heaven's, the war ain't, war's over with when you go to heaven, all right? That's not a great picture. I understand we want a river to cross to write our poems and sing our songs, but that's just not the right picture. Canaan's land is a place of spiritual warfare. But, but you've got the Lord on your side. You're doing his will. He wants you to embrace that role and fight the, the Christian's fight of faith. He wants you to wear the spiritual armor and take your shield of faith and the sword of spirit and go out marching Christian soldier and go out and take the land, possess that inheritance that God has promised you. So there's a natural side to that. There's a spiritual side to that. There's so many demons that are standing between you and the full blessings of God, the full promises of God. You better learn how to fight them. You better learn about spiritual warfare. You better learn how to take Canaan's land. But then there's a, there's a, Canaan's land is a place where you make Jesus Lord, master, savior of your life. Whatever he asks you to do, you're just doing it. You're walking in obedience, but you're fighting for your life every day. Sabbath rest is a different place. This is a place of intimacy in our relationship with God. We have to work to enter this rest. A place of no fear, no worries, no anxiety. A place of complete trust in the finished work of Christ. A place of blessing and peace. Here we cease from all our works and put 100% of our trust in Jesus Christ. Go to Genesis 1. When you talk about the subject of Sabbath rest, you need to go to creation. And you'll see how God created six days. Six days he did all his work. In six days he did all his work. In Genesis 1.31, you see, God saw everything that he hath made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning was the sixth day. When God created day one, he said, very good. No, he said, it is good. Day two, he says, it is so. Day three, it is good. Four, good. Five, good. Day six, it is very good. Now, look at this next verse, Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now how many of y'all think God was just exhausted after those six days of work? Man, he's probably up there saying, man, I am just wore out. And it's hot outside. I'm going to get a heat stroke if I keep this up. You know, I just, Jesus, go get me a glass of water here. Holy Spirit, would you please? No, God doesn't get tired. He never slumbers, he never sleeps, he's never weary. What he's saying is, very good. I'm ultimately and totally, completely satisfied in my work. So he just ceased work. The seventh day he didn't work. There was nothing else to do. There was nothing else to do. You want to find Sabbath rest? One day you're going to have to be totally, completely ultimately satisfied in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And when you get to that place, you'll realize there's nothing left to do. 
Oh man, I just want to shout over that. I feel the Holy Spirit on me so strong. This is the, this is the truth God wants us to see. Totally satisfied with His work. Very good. It's very good. Can't get any better. It's done. Jesus cried out on the cross. It is finished. The work was done. Seven days of creation. That's what I just said. Light and dark. It was good. Water above and below. It was so. There's a mystery there. We'll get on that one day. Land on the third day. Seas and vegetation. Vegetation. It was good. Day and night. Sun, moon, star. A lot of people think these days had to be 24-hour days. I argue with that because the fourth day is when he hung the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky. It's really hard to measure a day by 24 hours without a sun and a moon. So these days, if you look that up, that just means a span of time. And uh, God's not limited to time like we are. So don't, don't stress that over that. But it doesn't really matter one way or the other. God created everything. All things were created by him. In fact, the first day, the light, that was really the word of God. The Father stood up, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son stood up the Word because all things came out of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke all things into existence. So the light had to be there for Him to speak everything into existence. A a lot of lessons right here. I just can't take the time. Fifth day, fish and fowl is good. Sixth day, land animals, and then He created man. And then He said, it's very good. Very, very good. Now God wasn't just all happy with the way he did things and God wasn't tired and needing a break it was just finished there was no more creating to do it was finished Sabbath rest is a place when you can look at Christ and see everything you need in him you don't need anything else but him you have him you have everything you throw yourself down at his feet and make him Lord and master you you let him be the center of your life You want to find rest? Put Jesus as your center. You want to find Sabbath? Make He did the work for you. You can't add to what Jesus has already done. I want to roll through this a little bit deeper. God created all things in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. He ceased from his work. See, a lot of people got Jesus, and then they think, well, there's got to be more than this, so there's a whole lot of things I've got to do in order to be saved. So they, they... like the Christians that the writer of Hebrews was to, they were thinking, man, I better hedge my bet. This Jesus just sounds too good to be true, so I better go back and keep Sabbath day. I better go back and eat just kosher food. I better go back and do all these things to add to what Jesus did. Knowing Galatians, the Bible calls that falling from grace. You need to hang on to the gospel. You need to focus on the gospel. You need to embrace the gospel. Because this is the message, the message of freedom and liberty that you'll find in Christ, the message of rest. What is it, Hebrews 7, he says, being saved to the uttermost? We'll get to that soon. Same thing, that's Sabbath rest, saved to the uttermost. Not just saved from hell, but saved from yourself, saved from your fears and anxieties and worries. Saved to the place where you got a big smile and glad eyes and everybody wants what you got. Sabbath rest. So God was ultimately totally satisfied with his work. Very good. He rested. God is inviting us to intimacy with him, Sabbath rest, to a place where you're trusting him so much that your relationship with him now turns amazing. 
That you have a walk with Him and nobody really gets you anymore. Nobody even understands you anymore because you're walking in that place of perfect rest. Oh man, I don't give many amens, but I want you to know it's out there. You know what the, the deal is? Most of us have gone in and out of rest. I've experienced it. I've ta- how many of y'all have tasted it? But how many of y'all has fled away from you? <laughs> you know, I'm in and out of it. He wants us to get where we live there. Now, the Ten Commandments. Why not show this? Because it's very ironic that one of the commandments is Sabbath rest. The first three commandments deal with your relationship with God. Have no other gods, no idols, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. The last six commandments deal with your relationship with man. Honor father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't cut it. But that fourth commandment is rest. That's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. See, the Sabbath rest changed. None of the other moral laws changed. Jesus ushered in, you know, he he swallowed the law, he fulfilled the law, and he kept the law perfectly. And his commandments are even tougher than that. You read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sabbath changed. Jesus picked corn on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was really provisional, but there's no way to understand the law without Sabbath in the middle of it. Because Jesus is the only way we can have a relationship with God or a relationship with man. It all comes through Him. And this was a long time ago, and 2,000 years ago on a cross of Calvary, Sabbath rest came and died on a cross. And the only way man's ever going to have any rest to their soul is to put their trust in Jesus. Sabbath rest is not a day anymore. Now, it used to be. God wanted them to... Why? Because it was a type, a shadow, a picture. He's trying to train the whole world. They had a Talmud in the day. uh, uh, It's not called that then. It's called that now. The Jewish rabbis add to and update the law. And 2,000 years ago, this is, what the, this is what the rabbis said, all the activities that were prohibited, did I say that right? On the Sabbath, there was no sowing, no plowing, no reaping, no binding sheaves, no threshing, no winnowing, no selecting. There was no, that was in the field. Now bring it in the house. There was no grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool. Spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing stitches, tearing, trapping, slaughtering. You can't do any of that on a... Uh, their, their day was Saturday. Saturday was the, the Sabbath. All that was prohibited. There was no flaying. I'm not even sure what that is. No tanning. No scraping hide, marking hides, cutting hide to shape. There was no writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters, or building, or demolishing, or extinguishing a fire, or kindling a fire, or putting the finishing touch on an object, transporting an object between a private domain and public domain. A lot of Sabbath rules. So the Jews really prided themselves on keeping all these rules. They just shut down and didn't do anything. And that's what pleased God for a long time, since the days of Moses all the way to the time of Jesus. Why? God was trying to show them You need to stop what you're doing one day a week and just realize I'm your provider. That you only have things because of me. Let's just give give me honor. I want you to rest one day a week. So, So there's not much they could do. 
I looked this up for today's thing. Man, you can't talk on a phone, can't start a car, can't drive a tractor, can't run your air. I mean, there's all these things you can and can't do. And, and they gather on Saturdays and they, they think they're so holy because they're keeping this law. Sabbath law. It's a, a very complex law, but it was, it was really designed just to shut them all down for a day. Man had to literally cease from all forms of work. The Sabbath law was there so God could teach Israel that he was their true provider. Stop working and acknowledge God. The Sabbath was a picture, a type, a shadow pointing to Jesus. The whole thing was about Sabbath rest. Jesus was the law. How would Jesus come and pick corn on and work on Sunday? Because he was the Sabbath. He said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. It's no longer a day, it's me. So the children of Israel could not gather manna on the Sabbath in the wilderness. When they, got into, when they died off and their kids went into Canaan's land, then every seventh day they had to rest. And every seventh year their land rested. They couldn't plant crops on the seventh year. And then the seven times seven years, or the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, they took a whole year off, didn't plant any crops, Land restored to its original owner and all slaves went free. A picture of Sabbath rest, the year of Jubilee. Jesus is our Jubilee. Hallelujah. Jesus is Sabbath rest. And then one more picture is the we've been 6,000 years of time. It's my belief, debatable for sure. I don't know for sure. But I think from the Garden of Eden, it was about 6,000 years where we are today. So if that's true, we're living in the last days, and there's another thousand-year span coming up, uh, seven days. Six days of work, the seventh day is the millennial reign, a thousand years peace on earth. So 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that, the, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So with the Lord, 6,000 years, you could call it six days. And the seventh day is probably just right around the corner and we usher in the millennial reign. He said, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what I was trying to show you here is um, God's master time frame. You got six days starting with the Garden of Eden. 2,000 years go by approximately to the flood of Noah. Another 2,000 years go by until the first coming of Jesus Christ, or 4,000. Then we 2,000 years since Jesus Christ. We're right about the end of the 6,000 years of time, which is six days to the Lord. So the seventh, the second coming is the seventh year, right before the seventh year, which is a millennial reign, which is a thousand years of Sabbath rest. Now that, I know we're all excited about going to heaven one day, but just think of this. We get a thousand years on a, on a restored earth of Sabbath rest with Jesus Christ ruling this earth. No injustices, everything peaceful. As a, I, there's many, many verses in the Bible about this. I just chose this one passage because make my point the wolf shall dwell with the lamb i mean the wild animals will be wild no more wolves and lambs will be playing with each other the leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze 
Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. I'm so excited about the millennial reign. I've hated snakes all my life. That's the thing I hate the most is snakes. Dentists and snakes. That's the two things I just, I got no use for them. Can you imagine letting your baby play with a cobra? Can you imagine my cows and a bear hanging out in the same pasture? Can you imagine, this is just going to, not only will the wild animal nature be gone, but we'll be living in an agricultural society. We won't have iPhones, you know, and it's, going to be, it's just going to be a beautiful way of life. And Jesus is going to rule, and that's a picture of him ruling our heart. He's going to rule the earth. For a thousand years, there'll be a time of peace and rest on this earth. That's promise. What's he trying to show us? He's trying to tell us there is a rest for the people of God. Sabbath rest is so much more important than what I've ever given it, uh, the level of importance in my mind. Because I've entered in and out of it, and I've always thought, well, it's impossible, you can't live there. As I was studying this this week, God says, not only do I want you to enter it, I want you to live there, I want you to abide there. That's what it really means to abide in Him and His Word, abide in me. And as I abide in Him, I live in Him, and He lives in me, then Sabbath rest will be my experience. I would love to see a whole church full of people that understand how to live in Sabbath rest. Can I get a big amen on that? All right, I'm, I'm shutting her down. I've got to read you this, because this is where all the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. On the Sabbath, he's going through the grain fields. The disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He used a story in David's time. Remember, that was a time David broke the law. He ate the, table of sh- the bread off the table of showbread. And God allowed that because David was in a jam and Saul was trying to kill him, and, and God allowed that. See, you got law is in the Ark of the Covenant, but the mercy seat sits over the law. And uh, God... The law gets broken. The mercy seat sits over the law because mercy is greater than the law. And Jesus was trying to tell them, you know, the Sabbath's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he heals on the Sabbath day. And this just made him furious. He healed a withered hand. And the last verse here says, the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They started planning on killing him right now because they knew he couldn't be a man of God because he was defiling the Sabbath. They were so trapped in their religion. They were so blinded by their own deceitfulness of sin and hardened hearts. They had no idea that this was long-promised Messiah had come, that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, and Jesus Christ was there to fulfill the law, fulfill the Levitical priesthood, fulfill the Sabbath day, fulfill their food law. He was there to fulfill it all. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. And only those that follow him can ever experience that. Now, I do want to go on record saying this. I'm real strong about saying it's not the day. That means uh, you coming to church on Sunday is great, but if we had church on Tuesday or Thursday or Saturday, it wouldn't, wouldn't make any difference. There's nothing holy about the day Sunday. 
The Jews think it's on Saturday. Seventh Adventists think they're doing it on Saturday. My, my point is, it's not, doesn't matter which day. My point is, it's not the day. It's not the day. Jesus is the Sabbath. And I'm, I know I'm different than a lot of people on that, but I, I know I'm right. So I don't mind uh, being born. <laughs> and uh, on that issue, I am. But I do want you to know there's a principle involved that it's good to take a break. And, you know, your pastor, uh, five or six weeks ago, we, we took a, a sabbatical. And I thank God to Ben Stolfel that he helped me with that because I never would have stopped to do that. I think it prevented me from having a heart attack. I think I'm alive today because I took that sabbatical. But uh, there's a principle involved. You know, for all the years I had retail stores in Mississippi, I always closed them on Sunday. And I didn't do that because I was legalistic about Sabbath day. I did that to give my employees a day off. They need to be with their families. Hopefully they'll go to church. I just knew they needed to rest for a day. And, you know, Chick-fil-A does that. I'd rather eat there than any other place in town because these guys are really great Christians and bold Christians, and, and they let all their employees off on, on Sunday. And they do $10.2 billion a year, so they've probably given up about a billion and a half dollars a year by closing those restaurants on Sunday. So that's why, and I think that's why they always got a long line at their drive through People like going there because those Christian folk, you know. And, uh, but, but you're not winning brownie points with God. You're not saving yourself by resting. You're, you're saving your natural body, not your spiritual life. I'm just saying naturally it would be a good idea to take one day a week and just cool your jets a little bit and just rest and, and find, find a natural rest. Now, this verse here is the most famous concerning rest. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Now, that's salvation. Come to me. If you're burdened with sin, come to Jesus. If you've if you got sin in your life that's running you out of your mind, come and repent of that stuff and give it to Jesus. You'll find rest. You'll walk away from here totally changed. You'll be a happy person. But now he's saying to Christians... Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Remember, it's that soul that we have trouble with. It's our soul. It's not our spirit we have trouble with. It's our soul. If you'll learn to get yoked to him, and, and a yoke means you're accepting the absolutes that come with Jesus Christ. You're accepting the finalities, and you're making adjustments. You're willing to make him your Lord, and you're getting yoked to him. He will lead you into a rest, beloved one, like you've never experienced. You'll find happiness and peace and rest and joy and love. You'll find that place of blessedness. You'll find the place of abundant life in Christ. If you take the yoke and learn of him. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's not proud. Go down. Quit trying to go up. Go down. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So there is a rest for the people of God. Israel didn't enter in just because of unbelief. They didn't believe the, did not believe the word of God. They didn't believe the Joshua and Caleb's report, and they didn't rest on their faith. They said, we can take it. They said, no, we can't. We're going to lose that fight. So they didn't believe it when God said, I will fight the fight for you. You know, there's even a place in Scripture where God said, I'll take hornets, and I'll, the hornets will go before you, and the hornets will drive the people out. It would have been so easy for God to drive all those people out if he just had a people of faith that really wanted the promise. And, and God wants you to inherit land spiritually, and it's going to take faith for you to inherit that. And, and God, he'll bring the hornets out. 
If you think, well, I'm scared of all the devils, well, God's got hornets in the spiritual realm that will push every devil away from you. You don't need to fear the devil. You want to respect the fact that he, he's nasty and don't ever open yourself up to him. Don't ever open a window of your soul to let him in because sometimes he's hard to get out. But, beloved, you don't have to walk in fear of him because you've got the faith of Jesus Christ to go with you. Hallelujah. All right, I'm done. Oh, and this scripture, I want, this is really the way i got to close. Because we read this in our opening text, Hebrews 3 and 4. And it was talking about the children of Israel couldn't go in because of unbelief. And then you get this scripture, and at first glance it made me say, hmm, that's kind of out of place. Well, no, not at all. He's trying to give you the antidote to the sickness of unbelief. He, this is the medicine for, this is the cure. The Word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God. Beloved, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want faith enough to go into Canaan's land? Get the Word of God alive in your life. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Study it. Listen to it all the time. I got it in my truck whenever I'm driving. I've always got the Word of God going. You can do it on your phone now. You can hook in and get Scripture poured into you. You get preaching poured into you. There's a lot of ways to get the Word of God, but one sermon every Sunday is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about make that your life. No Bible, no breakfast. Make that a rule. Start every morning to eat the Word of God. Your heart will be full of faith and you'll be like Caleb. Let's take the mountain. We can take this land. The Word of God is alive, and the Word of God will give you the faith. And someone says, well, I just got to work out my own salvation. Look, I want to put this in context as we close. It, says, it is God who worked in you. Philippians 2, therefore, my brethren, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That gets misquoted. What is Paul really saying? I'm not there. I'm out of town. <laughs> We don't have automobiles. I've sent this letter, and I'm hundreds of miles away from you, so I'm not there to help you with it right now, so work it out yourself. He's not saying to enter into this life of trying to save yourself. He's trying to say, I'm not there to help you do it without me. And then he says in the next verse, the exact opposite of that kind of thinking, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, King James says to do, for, for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you. He, if you don't even have a desire, start praying, God, give me a desire. Put your will in me. Give me a desire. I don't even have a desire to go to Canaan's land. I just want to be left alone, and I want to go to heaven when I die. But Pastor Bill's talking about a spiritual rest that I need to inherit. So God, give me the desire. Put the desire in me to start running after you. And then not only he'll give you the will, but he'll put the work, he'll do the do. So stop struggling to try to change yourself. Stop trying to redeem yourself. Rest in Christ. This is my final slide. I need to... All right, Jesus' redemptive work is done. It is finished. How many of y'all think you can improve upon what Jesus did? Rest in that. Learning to live by the life of another is true Sabbath rest. I don't work for God. Jesus lives in me and works through me. I'm to Jesus was this way with his father. He's totally dependent upon his father to flow through him. 
John 14 tells us that clearly. It was really the work of the Father living the perfect life through Jesus. We're, we're now to allow the life of Christ to live through us. That's rest. Are we ultimately and totally satisfied in the, in the finished work of Jesus Christ? It is very good. It is very good. The gospel is very good. What Jesus did at the cross is very good. It's enough. I'm satisfied. That's enough. And my final thought, there is a rest for the people of God now labor to enter into that rest. That sounds like a contradiction, but that means to, to, to pray and, and take the spiritual disciplines and get alone with God and quiet with God and study and wrestle with God, and you can enter into that rest. I want to see us all laboring to get into that rest and living in the rest of God. Sabbath rest is what this is about. Would y'all stand and we'll be dismissed. Amen. Did y'all enjoy that this morning? If so, I'd like to give the Lord a big hand clap.